Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church to everybody. Hopefully everybody got a bulletin, and hopefully you know that today is a fellowship luncheon uh, service after, after the service. So we're having our fellowship luncheon. Also, in the activities, I want to highlight that uh, Awana starts this week. This Wednesday, they'll be launching, so um, that's for kids anywhere from pre-K up through the eighth grade. Our ladies' Bible studies will be starting the uh, first week of September on the 6th. And also, the uh, youth are meeting tonight at uh, 6 o'clock here to uh, study the model of a man and the model of a woman. So those should be very enlightening for the, uh, for the youth. We're going to be reading from John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. If you want to move in your Bibles to that, we'll, re we'll read the, the Word of God, and then we'll, uh, then we'll pray, and then we'll worship together in some song. So John chapter 3, verse 29 says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Verse 30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's, of course, John the Baptist talking about, the, about Jesus. All right, so why don't we bow our heads together, we'll pray together, and uh, then we'll sing together. Father, we do um, start our day, start our service, that is, coming to you, worshiping you, telling you how much we love you, how much we appreciate your care for us, how much, Lord, we depend upon you. For those things are all true, and we rely upon your word to guide us and direct us, to fill us so that your Holy Spirit can do the guiding and directing. Father, I pray for those who are not with, here with us today for various reasons, who are, who are sick, who are coming off medical treatments that uh, uh, don't allow them to go out, or don't, they're not, not ready to go out. Father, I pray for those who are, are, are sick and not able to be with us, for those who are, might be traveling. Please give them safety and mercy. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon our service, Lord, that we might just worship the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is honoring to him. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with us and we'll worship?
There's no power like the power of Jesus. Let faith arise. Let all agree. There's no power like the power of Jesus. I will believe for greater things. There's no power like the power of Jesus. Let faith arise. Let all agree. There's no power like the power.
Good morning. morning. Hope y'all are staying dry a little bit here lately. Um, Y'all can tell that Jacob is not here this week. uh, 
He's a little better about taking vacations than I am. Uh, so he's out camping with his family down in Garner State Park. So pray for him as he travels back. Uh, I think it's Garner State Park. I think that's what I heard. He may not want me to know where he is. He may, who knows? But I think it's Garner State Park. Uh, so let's pray for him. But children, you guys can go to Children's Church. Uh, now let's not forget that. Um, but we do need to pray uh, for those, as Steve already did. Uh, we have a, a number of folks that are um, engaging uh, in, in some health issues and some treatments for that. So we want to make sure that we continue to pray for them as, as we go on. So we're going to do that this morning as well as praying for El Paso Bible Church and other, just the, the other things going on in the world. And uh, so if you would join with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the provision that you have made for us to be here this morning and join together in fellowship around singing your praises. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend time in your word and to to engage and absorb and apply the truth that is in it for us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Uh, We love you. Father, we know that you love those who are suffering right now with health issues. And we know that you, sir, are the, are, you are the ultimate healer. You are the ultimate healer of, all fo- of anyone who comes before you who is healed. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your love and care and concern for them. And we thank you right now uh, that those suffering can have comfort by the spirit that indwells us. We love you for that as well. And we thank you for this opportunity again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning, we're starting a a new series. Now, this is something we don't do very often here because uh, of the way we do things, right? Um, So, uh, this is going to be a new new book, a new time. Now, I have taught 1 John in some context at some point uh, some years ago, uh, but a lot of y'all were probably not here at that time, and that's okay. So, we're going to do that again this morning, starting today. Um, and introductions are always a little bit difficult because I'm going to synthesize some things that we haven't proven from the text exactly yet because we haven't started the text yet, right? But we need to start with some sort of background information, right? Uh, and the background information is important in this case. First uh, John is uh, a difficult book in a lot of ways. Uh, for a lot of people. Um, so we're going to orient ourselves, right? It's a, it's a, this book in particular is one that if it is misunderstood, creates a lot of, uh, a lot of problems in people's spiritual lives, uh, creates a lot of issues with uh, people having uh, an excessive amount of introspection and extrospection, right? They're judging themselves and judging other people. And so we want to make sure that we approach it properly, right? It's more so. Uh, and First John also is kind of unfortunately has a lot of things that I think are straight up poor translation decisions um, in the book. And we'll cover those as we, we get to them and hopefully make those clear. But most of the issues start at the very beginning, actually. Most of them start within uh, the first four verses, which is what we're going to be looking at today primarily. Uh, most of them. So if we get this right, we're going we're gonna to be able to, it's going to help us, right? It's one of those things that's going to help us later on. If we make sure that we understand the vocabulary here, uh, most epistles state their purpose 
right? So if you're reading through the Bible and you have, you, you haven't written a letter in a long time, right? Like an actual letter on paper with a pen. I don't know if I can still do it. I could, even when I sign a check, I'm like, now, how do I do this again? Got to remember, you know. Um, but as you're reading the epistles, especially in the Bible, you observe a structure, right? It says, uh, to the saints, to the church, to the something, you know, to the ones who are called according to God's purpose. Addressing the audience, right? And these are all believers um, when it comes to the epistles. All the epistles are written to believers to address certain things. And that's the pattern, right? And then if you get the salutation, and then you have generally some sort of statement of purpose. This is the issues that you're being presented. This is the thing that I'm going to cover. This is what I think you need to learn from what I'm going to write to you. And First John does that. It does it sooner than a lot of Paul's epistles because he, does, he doesn't have any other part. I, John, to the wonderful da-da-da-da-da people, this. It just, he just gets down to brass tacks, which tells you something especially, and that is that they knew him very well, right? You get a text every once in a while from a number you don't have in your phone, right? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of boomerish, I guess. I actually ask, and I don't go, who dis? Right? When somebody does that, I'm, I actually ask them, I don't have this number saved. I'm sorry. Who, who is this? They didn't have to do that in 1 John. They, they knew who he was, and he knew who they were. So there was not the need for the salutation here. So we're going to see that. The purpose is right there. And I tell you, this is a, this is a troubling book uh, for a lot of people, and, and they struggle with it. I... Uh, in my time at El Paso Bible Church, I thought I was having coffee with one gentleman one time who was visiting the church, and it ended up to be a, a first John assault for three and a half hours. Um, and he happened to disagree on this one point, on this book, on the purpose of this book. And after we left... I'm not sure that he still understood First John, but I knew that I didn't see him again at the church. So this is, this is something that causes a barrier for people. So I want you to be aware of that, that it is a, an area of distinct uh, conflict and can create barriers in people's lives if it's not understood correctly. There's a serious theological issue with the, the two main ideas that people take when they're interpreting the text. So this is why introductions are hard. We haven't looked at the book yet, but I'm telling you that people screw it up from beginning to end, like from the very beginning through the very end. And you're like, that sounds kind of harsh, Josh. It's a little harsh. Um, there are basically two categories, and they start from these first four verses. And you have a lot of people um, that either ignore the purpose statement entirely or ignore the words in the purpose statement. And again, we haven't read those verses yet, but they take this book, and from the very beginning, they take what is called the test of life view. That's what it's called out there, if you run into it in a commentary. Sometimes they'll even have that under the subheading for the commentary, the test of life. And what that means is that they go through this book, and they see it as a bunch of checkboxes that you can check for yourself and as a good little magic trick, you can do it for other people. 
right out of this book to see if they actually believe in Jesus and that they're actually saved and they're actually going to heaven when they die. That's called the test of life view. In other words, you take it to be a system by which we can be assured of going to heaven when we die if we can check all these boxes. Does that sound funny to you? Sounds funny to me. Because I only know of one way to get assurance of my justification. What is that one way? You all know? Hopefully you know after I've been here for 12 years. Because you believe in Jesus, and Jesus promises that he who believes in me has eternal life, John 6, 47. That's the only way you can actually know, right? That's the only objective standard. It's one single checkbox, and it has nothing to do with how you treat your brother or your sister. Thankfully, right, Isaac? As he's bugging his sister down here on the second row. It doesn't have anything to do with how you treat anybody or whatever. It has to do with what Jesus did for you and whether you believe in that or not. Trust in it. A lot of people wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised by a lot of people who take that view. That's just an expansion of their whole view of how you're supposed to live your life. It's a whole lot of fruit inspecting. A whole lot of, well, what do you expect from that unbeliever? He, he smokes cigars and drinks bourbon. Can't listen to what that guy says. Those of us who smoke a cigar and drink a little bourbon are like, what? You know, but it creates a list, right? That people, that allows them the freedom to do that, right? So most of those people really functionally seem to think that it's our main job to go around and find people who are the real believers, right? and to satisfy themselves that they're sort of checking enough boxes that they have assurance of eternal life because they haven't learned the simple truth. Or maybe in some cases they have forgotten it. That I have assurance of eternal life because Jesus promised it. And that is all. And he is reliable. But some people you might be surprised by take that view that you can look at somebody and you can tell if they... They check most of the boxes given in First John. This was, the, this was the argument I had over coffee for a long time with this gentleman. He said, well, you, don't wanna, you can't look at all the things that they do, but there is a list in First John. And if they don't do these things, then they're not really believers in Jesus. There, there's nothing. There's no check boxes. There's no big, long list. There's no... Did y'all ever take the, what do they call those, the little bubbles, the scantrons? There's no big honking scantron. And First John isn't a scantron, so you can be justified. This isn't a gospel tract. I mean, there are people you'd be surprised by that take that view, though. Men that I have a great amount of regard for. David Jeremiah takes that view as the test of life for First John. And he's very mistaken on this view. A lot of agreement with him. Uh, but I think the text delineates why that's wrong. But it should surprise no one here that, that El Paso Bible Church doesn't hold that we can observe somebody's external behavior and tell whether they're going to heaven when they die. Praise Jesus. Right? Right? Because then you've got to do everything in the closet if you don't want people to think you're going to hell. Right? You just can't let anybody observe anything. You can't live your life 
on this earth. It's supposed to be objective. At El Paso Bible Church, we are in the minority. Can we say minority or is that, is that not woke enough? Is that racist or something? I don't know. We're in the minority. We take not the test of life view. We take what is called the test of fellowship view of 1 John. And one of the reasons for that is because John never says anything about justification in this whole book, really, about getting it. And that's something we need to distinguish. Um, He doesn't ever tell anybody because he's not addressing unbelievers. He doesn't tell them this is how you get eternal life. He doesn't tell them that. He tells them how they can have fellowship. And fellowship is not justification. Fellowship is a, a quality of life that you live. Among other believers in our temporal lives, it is characterized by obedience and, and joy in your life. Do believers need to know how to do that? You ever met some non-joyful believers? Not at El Paso Bible Church. That would never happen here. We would never be lacking one iota of joy at El Paso. What do you mean? Yes, we need to know. We need to know what God's provision for joy in our life is. And John's purpose is us that that is in fellowship. And that fellowship is an alterable state. Is justification an alterable state? You know what, y'all remember what justification means, right? You don't have to spell it, but when I say it, you know what it means. It means that I have trusted in Jesus Christ. I have been declared righteous. I, I am clothed with his righteousness. My identity is in him, and nothing can take that from me. It's unalterable. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It is a reality that is mine. It is a permanent transformation. It's taken place. I am his. But fellowship is alterable, and it's not the same thing as going to heaven when we die. It's not. It can be altered by disobedience and discipline. And, and that will alter the status of our fellowship. It is, it is most definitely something that is affected by behavior, how we treat other people particularly. It can be altered by our behavior. Justification cannot be altered by your behavior because it's inalterable, right? Are we in agreement? You don't even have to agree. I just want you to agree that, that you understand what I'm saying, okay? You can disagree. People act like I'm, I'm uh, you know, monolithic and I demand absolute agreement. I don't, I don't do that. People have come to me and say, you try to tell everybody what to do. I was like, you can go listen to the thousands of hours of biblical teaching that I have had in the last 20 years, and you will find very few instances of me telling people what to do. I'll tell people what they ought to do, (laughs) maybe, and what the positive benefits of that are, and I'll tell them what not to do, what they ought not to do, and what the negative consequences would be. I don't tell you what to do. You're not going to find it. Very limited scope where I'm supposed to tell people what to do. Like, Isaac, wake up, sit up. See? I'm supposed to tell him what to do. He's my kid. 
don't tell people what to do. But John is telling us this is the key to joy in our life, right? And, and we need you to understand that approach anyway, and we're going to then go through the text, right? Uh, at bare minimum, we, sh- we, we disagree with the idea that you can look at somebody's behavior as if they're like sleeping in church means that they don't go to heaven when they die, because that's ludicrous, right? The, some of y'all are laughing because I could have done the same thing to you, but you're not my job. It's not my job to wake you up on Sunday morning. It's all right. It doesn't offend me. Just don't snore like all my professors said. Look, if you've got to sleep in class, sleep, but don't snore. We take that test of fellowship. It's an alterable state, and it is one that can be lessened and alienated, or it can grow in intimacy and provide for fullness of joy in our lives. It's called the test of fellowship view. And it is affected by behavior. And it is identifiable based on that. We can say, do I love my brother or not? That defines whether I'm in fellowship with my brother or not, right? But that doesn't define whether Jesus loves me or not or what my identity is in Christ. That would be like saying that an ice, throwing an ice cream cone at somebody, which is a waste of a perfectly good ice cream cone, but I've seen it happen, alters my DNA, does chunking an ice cream cone at somebody alter my DNA? No. That's what some people look at First John and say. John says fellowship is necessary for the fullness of joy. It's presented as the key to a fullness of joy for everybody. So, so really, all we need to do is to observe, because he says there are people... They'll say that the distinction isn't in the text, right? They'll, they'll read John and they'll, they'll argue that fellowship is justification and justification is fellowship. And that part of this letter, just a few verses, are written to unbelievers. And that's simply not true, right? Because it is designed, so if that were true, right, if fellowship is the key to joy, can we grant that for a second? Fellowship is the key to joy. Intimate fellowship is the key to full joy then everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ should have a fullness of joy in their lives. Right? We know for a fact that's not true. I, am, I will admit to you, I am not standing here in the fullness of all joy in my life this morning. My back hurts. And I got all sorts of things going on. I wake up most mornings going, holy smokes, how, what have I done to myself? How am I going to get all this crap done? I don't feel a fullness of joy in the middle of all of that all the time. Are you with me? See, fellowship isn't justification because I woke up as a cranky justified guy today. And some of y'all did too. That's all right. I love you anyway. Jesus loves you still. But you haven't had the fullness of joy. So you, need to, you do need to know what's here in 1 John. Because it's not a benefit of simply believing in Jesus having a fullness of joy. Justification is not the same as fellowship. Joy can wax and wane because fellowship can wax and wane. That's how I see it. Some people identify it as broken and unbroken. I don't necessarily see it quite like that, but it can certainly be alienated and intimate in direct relation to our experience of fellowship. So we're going to take that we're going to take that view, okay? And I'm not going to apologize for it. Even if you disagree, that's, where we're, that's what we're going to take it, okay? And you can see if it fits or not. 
What about the normal stuff that we do in an introduction? Who wrote it? Well, here's, here's where the fun starts. Paul is nice, right? Paul says, I, Paul, wrote this, and I wrote it to this guy. John never mentions himself in this letter. Never mentions himself. How do we know John wrote it? Well, the closest I can get to is that Irenaeus says so. And that's significant. You know who Irenaeus is? Church father. He was discipled by a guy with a really funny name, Polycarp. Carpe carpum, right? Seize the fish. Polycarp, many carps. No, that's not what his name means, but it's funny. That's what you always think of when you're a kid. What in the world is a church father being named Polycarp for? What did he do? But he was discipled directly by John. And so Irenaeus is kind of John's spiritual grandson, and he identifies it, and it was under general agreement that John wrote this thing. So we don't have a reason. He doesn't call himself here like he does in the gospel. In John's gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and it's very, very consistent, and so we can identify who he is there. So it, it does seem consistent, right, that this is an exposition of John chapter 15, which is a discussion of, of the benefits of abiding in Christ and how you're supposed to produce fruitfulness. The whole book is based on this, it seems like. So I'm not going to quibble. I'm not going to argue. Um, and so that's kind of the normal thing that we do. See, see why it can get confusing for people? There's, there's not a, an assignment of the author within the book. When was it written? There are a lot of opinions, right? It's like asking 100 people in a room what the pastor's job is. You get 120 opinions. You get a lot of opinions on, on when this was written. Uh, there's no historical referent uh, in the letter. Some people think it was written kind of late, like um, around the time John wrote Revelation, like around that time, kind of later in life when we think he wrote the gospel record down that he wrote. Uh, But then again, some people think that that's true, but that the gospel was written a little bit earlier than that. So we're not really quite sure. There's not a specific thing. A lot of people lean very heavily in the Bible when a letter doesn't mention the destruction of the temple. So they have a dividing line, a demarcation there, uh, that anything that doesn't mention the destruction of the temple is written before 70 AD. I'm not sure if that flies or not, but it could be earlier. We just don't know. We don't know. It makes sense to me that there might be some space in between the gospel and the epistles just because the language is different. Uh, you know, when you take Koine Greek, and I've taken a lot, a lot of Koine Greek, uh, you'd think that I would have got it the first time, right? But I took it in high school first. Priscilla and I took it together for a couple of years. And I'm very thankful for that foundation way back. Um, but the first verses that you learn usually are John chapter 4 because the language is very, very simple. And you, the, the vocabulary in the gospel of John is very, very simple. And the translation is easy. Vocabulary is limited. It's not like Hebrews or some of Paul's epistles. But there is a transition when he gets to 1 John. It seems that it maybe is an older, more you know, developed a little bit. So maybe that's the case. So we don't know. See, there you go. Now, if you didn't ever think that Pastor Josh says, I don't know, he just did. Twice. I don't know. Just record it. Write it down. 
didn't say I was wrong, mind you. I just said I don't know. Why was it written? This is all introductory material, right? Um, it's, it's written to believers, that much is evident, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every epistle, and I could argue probably every book in the New Testament is written to believers. But other than that, who it was written to, um, maybe Western Turkey, Asia, the Roman province of Asia, but they're also not identified. But chapter 2 makes it very clear that they were believers, if nothing else. So they were believers, but that's important uh, because it, it defines the terminology, defines the range of the terminology and the discussion that's taking place. We don't want to go outside those bounds of what is relevant. So, but what was the occasion? And this is, I mean, people have a really hard time with fairly simple things. You know, you ask somebody to outline the book of Philemon, no problem. You ask somebody to outline Romans. Romans has a couple of, couple of interesting things, but mostly Romans is very logical, very linear. You ask people to outline 1 John and they break into tears and ask for their mother. It's pretty hard, actually, to outline the book the way we would outline other books. So, Given that, it's also hard to, to identify the exact occasion that First John was written to address. Because it's usually a problem, right? You know that First Corinthians was written because the church at Corinth was very, very naughty. They were very, very fleshly. It doesn't surprise you. Second Corinthians was written because Paul felt bad about being so harsh on the first, in the first letter. He actually apologized doesn't want him to misunderstand how harsh he was. I like that dynamic, by the way. Occasionally I'm harsh enough that I feel bad about it, but then I realize that that was necessary. Usually. But people are trying to be overly precise about it. And they get into trouble with that. And, and they're overly dogmatic, maybe overly precise about it. And there are people that think... This, this is where I see this happen the most, and that is that they believe and have been taught that 1 John was written to confront what we call Gnosticism. And it, there's a difference between saying that if you need to confront Gnosticism, and you do need to confront Gnosticism because it's still out there. I mean, that's what most of the cults are based upon is some form of Gnosticism. Uh, there's, it's, that's a catch-all for a lot of different varieties of things that deny the deity of Christ, that deny the humanity of Christ, uh, that deny the Trinity, that deny all sorts of things. They, all sorts of heresies are, go under the umbrella of Gnosticism. Um, and a lot of people lean so heavily on that that it leads them to say things that the text doesn't really really say. The, the, the thing that we identify as capital G Gnosticism didn't exist during John's lifetime, really. So the, the difference in, in that is saying that we want to maintain that Scripture is sufficient to answer the claims of Gnosticism, right? Because Scripture is sufficient to answer the claims of Gnosticism. But that doesn't mean that First John was written in that time period to address something that didn't exist. So I think Scripture is sufficient, and First John is sufficient to answer Gnosticism but that's not its occasion, uh, because historically it just didn't, it didn't, it wasn't gelled, it wasn't there. The, the thing that came into the church later w was, uh, 
much more, much more identifiable. Now, the only exception to that, and, and I, I told you, introductions are hard, right? Um, so we're talking about church history and Gnosticism and all this stuff. We're going to remind, I'll remind you of these things as we go and why it matters. The only exception was a man named Serenthus. Serenthus was kind of a proto-Gnostic. Serinthian, not Corinthius, Serinthus, Serinthian doctrine. The problem with Serinthus is we have no writings of Serinthus. All we have is his enemies writing books about how stupid he is, how dumb he is, or how he was wrong. Um, guys, this would be like taking the January 6th committee and letting them write the history books of this period. All right? Anybody want to guess what they would say about President Trump? Do we want them to write the history books? Do you? Um, I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, so when you let your enemies, if your enemies are the only thing that it can fo- inform you about somebody's doctrine, I mean, I get accused of being a universalist sometimes by people. Yeah, because people think, well, there's nobody that doesn't believe in Jesus, so every, according to your doctrine, just everybody can be saved. There's a big difference between universalism and saying everybody can be saved. Yes? Right? That's somebody that tells me that if I don't believe in a limited atonement unto justifica- for justification purposes, right, that that I'm a universalist, and, and if somebody wrote down a commentary on Josh Meyer's doctrine, which they would never do because I'm a nobody from nowhere, but if they did, it would be an error, and they would be propagating an error, and if they didn't have my notes anywhere, it would be foolish for people to say, well, Josh Meyer was he's a heretic and a wacko liberal. So we want to be careful with that. But, but John does tell us Right? He teaches us what the nature of the error was. And this is what, the main reason I don't think it's Gnosticism. Uh, in 1 John 2, 22 to 23, he talks about who the Antichrist and the liars are, the people he's confronting. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son, oh, excuse me, back up. Who is the liar? Verse 22, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the the anointed one. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, you may not know much about Gnosticism. You know a lot about Gnosticism. Do we have anybody with a PhD in first century Gnostic studies? Okay, I'm safe. Okay. The Gnostics don't believe that. The Gnostics didn't teach that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. What they wanted to do was modify doctrines that we consider crucial to Jesus being the Messiah. But they never said that Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah. They said that Jesus of Nazareth was not God. That's a big error. That's a big error. But they would never say that Jesus was not the Messiah. They might say, like Serinthus said, that um, Jesus was not, they denied the virgin birth. Serenthus denied the virgin birth. From what we can tell from his enemies, he denied the virgin birth. But he didn't say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Yes? That's a very specific claim that none of them made. So, so the people that John is talking about are not Gnostics. 
the liars and the Antichrist, John was confronting, did teach that. They just straight up denied Jesus as the Messiah. Now again, 1 John is sufficient for countering the claims of Gnosticism. It's helpful. And Scripture as a whole is sufficient for doing that. But that's not his audience, and that's not the occasion was confronting Gnosticism. He's confronting a more holistic, a wider variety of people, I think, than just what we would identify as Gnosticism. And those were what he's talking about. Now, we don't have a a ton of time left, and, and the lunch is starting to smell good. To me, anyway. Is it wafting up before it's wafting down? Are y'all not smelling the things that I'm smelling? Because I'm kind of surprised y'all are still here in introductory material for First John and like not in the kitchen. Um, but it's starting to smell good in here, but we do need to talk about the text. I've told you a lot of stuff that happens right in the introduction of First John, and we need to look at it, right? So John begins. And he begins similarly, actually, to his gospel. In the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, right? He talked about the beginning. First John begins similarly, what was from the beginning? Now, maybe a different beginning he's talking about, but it's similar vocabulary. What was from the beginning, what we have heard with our ears, or what one of my kids called his earballs. I think that was Thaddeus. I heard it with my own earballs, Dad. What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, meaning that we intently observed it, we did, it wasn't just in our peripheral vision, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, it was unavoidable in our, our vision, we had to identify it. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That category of, of witness. What we have seen and heard, we preach to you or proclaim to you also for this purpose. One of those henna plus a subjunctive clauses, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's his purpose. Don't skip all the way to chapter 5. That's not the purpose statement. The purpose statement is right here. In order that, for the purpose that you may have fellowship with us. The apostolic cohort is the way I take that. The, people, the other people who had seen and heard and touched and observed and had it manifested and were proclaiming the word of life, these things, so you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the purpose as it relates to them. These things we write, another henna plus subjunctive, so that our joy may be made complete. There's two purposes. So that you may have fellowship, so that we may have joy, and it would be complete. It's from the beginning. Um, it was something that was seen with eyeballs and heard with the earballs, right? Something that was not um, spiritual only. Right? We have a lot of world religions out there. Um, just trust us, right? They say. 
Islam is one. An illiterate peasant is supposed to uh, have recorded the entire Quran because of an angel in some cave somewhere, but the guy couldn't read. Right? Y'all know that's part of it. It's not the only one. There's a bunch of them out there. Yeah, yeah, just trust us. This came from heaven. Right? This witness is, is valid. It's true. You can believe it, but don't ask to see it. Don't ask for confirmation. That's secret. It's a mystery. The difference here, right, is that John says this is something that we have seen. We have heard. We have touched it. Our hands handled it. It was manifested to us. It was made unmistakable for us. We're communicating this to you. It was not shadowy. It was not uncertain. It was not, you know, something like out of Star Wars. Prophecies misunderstood maybe, right? None of that. They encountered it personally and fully. We have people sign affidavits, right? And if it's an important affidavit, we have somebody called a notary, right? That stands in front of you to touch the papers you touch, to touch your ID, to confirm with their eyes that you're the person on the picture on the ID. How do you like that, guys? You look like the picture on your driver's license? Huh, not for long. Thing you can go for 12 years. Last one I got, I, I had it taken probably when I was, was like 24 or something. 12 years later, so I got pulled over. Right? Remember that our behavior doesn't define whether we're going to heaven or not, right? Like if you're speeding, you don't go to hell, right? Praise Jesus. So maybe I was speeding, maybe I had a turn signal out, I don't remember what it was, and the guy was like, That was six kids ago, guy. Six kids, three jobs, and a whole state. But they're confirming it, right? Eyewitness. So this is this is true and valid. This is this is an affidavit. These are things that we touched. It's a valid witness. And it was manifested to them, and they were proclaiming it to the audience. And I think we've t- we touched on this this morning already. How you get eternal life, you need to understand, is, is different than the way Scripture describes what eternal life is, right? Right? Y'all know this, guys. How do I get a hammer? Now, in my backyard currently, there are quite a few feral hammers <laughs> because I have a few feral little boys running around with hammers, some extra ones. So you could answer me, go out in your backyard and pick one up. You could say, go to Ace Hardware and pay 40% more for the hammer than you would pay at Lowe's, or you could go to Lowe's, and you could get the hammer. You exchange consideration for the hammer. What is a hammer? The answer to those questions are two very different things, right? If you're a redneck, it's the closest thing at hand, right? It could be an adjustable wrench. It could be a pair of vice grips. It could be a rock or your youngest son. We just, I'm just kidding, Isaac. I'm giving you a hard time. Just make sure you don't go to sleep. I'm just kidding. You don't use your youngest son as a hammer. That's a different question and a different answer. So when we look at Scripture, we need to ask, what is he proclaiming to them? He is not proclaiming to them how to get eternal life because that's not even there. 
What he's proclaiming to them is the experience of the substance of eternal life, which we might have connected to joy, right? Eternal quality of life, life like God has that goes on forever but is perfect and full of joy. He's proclaiming to them what the substance of eternal life is, and that is fellowship. And this isn't the only place where I get that. John 17, 3 tells us that. That's one of the clearest definitions of what eternal life is. It says, this is eternal life that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That if you know, that is this, this <laughs> an intimacy of knowledge, let's just say, in Scripture. To know someone well. To know God and to know Christ is the substance of eternal life, to have intimacy with Him. Let's see, where is it? First John 5 here. We could skip over. Says something different, the same, similar, actually. Right at the very end of the book, in closing, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding for the purpose that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son Jesus Christ, and this is the true God and eternal life. So we get this question as pastors a lot. My life hasn't changed since I believed in Jesus. How do I know? And what good does it do? Well, how do I know? We ask, we answer simply. We answer simply. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. The next question, what good does it do me? Is that a question that's come up in your life? Oh, the churchy, the people who grew up in church, oh, I don't ask that question. That sounds, that sounds not very churchy. But you should ask the question, what good does it do me? What benefit does it provide? That's okay. You can ask me that question. I'm going to give it to you the answer. Because you can't have joy in your life without living eternally. And to gain the experience of the substance of eternal life, we need fellowship like this. What John is proclaiming is not how to get eternal life, but proclaiming what the content of eternal life is. And when we are experiencing it, what we are experiencing when we experience it, what it looks like, and how it's exhibited in the life of a church through fellowship. Now, what he's saying is that we experienced that. We had a unique privilege of knowing through a multi-sensory experience, seeing with our eyes, seeing with our ears, touching with our hands, our hands handled. We had a unique experience of intimacy, of knowing Christ, and we're proclaiming that you can have that advantage through our testimony. You can have that same fellowship that we had through our testimony. And that kind of fellowship is what every believer needs to have the fullness of joy in their life. All right, now I know the introductions are hard, but now we're done.
and we can go eat. I'm going to try to remember to pray for the food also. All right. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of 1 John. We thank you for John's faithfulness in recording it um, and being inspired by your spirit in the words that he wrote. Father, we thank you for the benefit that fellowship provides in our life. Father, we ask that you bless our progress through this book and that it would be a blessing to us. Uh, Father, we also pray for this meal that we're about to partake, a fellowship meal, which provides certainly an opportunity for increased joy in our lives as we fellowship together around this table. Pray that you bless it to our bodies and to your glory today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close with a song? Mm.